Welcome to Origins, the podcast about the money behind the money. This podcast was created by Notation, a pre-seed venture firm based in Brooklyn, New York. For these next several episodes, we asked our LP friends at Sapphire Partners to step in as our guest hosts. We asked Sapphire Partners to lead the season because they're experts in the venture ecosystem, they partner with the best early stage venture funds, and they have a deep LP network to bring exciting new voices to the show. We're thrilled to call them an LP of our own, and we're grateful to have had their support since day zero of Notation. Sapphire is hosting these next episodes in support of their Open LP initiative. OpenLP is a community-sourced effort that amplifies and aggregates LP and GP voices across the venture ecosystem. So without further ado, let's get started. Hi, listeners. Thanks for joining today's podcast. I'm your host, Laura Thompson, partner at Sapphire Partners, and I'm excited to introduce our guest today, Jacqueline Hefter, a partner at Foundry. Jacqueline leads direct investments in early-stage companies and help launch the partner fund strategy. She's a recovering lawyer and brings this past life plus her unique perspective as an LP and a GP to her work. Today, we'll be chatting about how LPs pick funds, what good performance looks like, how everything is changing with the shift in today's markets. We'll discuss all of this and more, so let's dive in. Hi, Jacqueline. Thank you so much for joining us today, and um, I'm really looking forward to our discussion. Great to be here, and thanks for having me. Well, maybe we can start with um, a little bit of your background and kind of the path you've taken to becoming a VC. Absolutely. So um, I'm a partner at Foundry. We are a VC firm. We're a little bit different where we are both an LP and a GP. And I can talk a little bit more about our strategy, but I've been at Foundry for six years. Prior to that, um, I was an attorney, uh, which I don't always like to admit. Didn't last very long in that career, but about, a, about two years uh, as a practicing attorney after doing my JD and my MBA at CU in Boulder. I'm originally from the East Coast. I did not grow up around tech and venture. I didn't know about startups or uh, any of that, really, and really learned about venture capital when I came to Boulder for school. The law school had a focus on entrepreneurship, which was just really spoke to me and was very interesting to me. Uh, looking back, my parents had their own business. I never thought of them as entrepreneurs, but they were. And, and before them, uh, grandparents you know, came to this country and had had nothing and started a farm. So also some some entrepreneurial DNA there. So it really resonated with me. And I loved the idea of innovation and building and sort of driving change uh, in, around the world um, and in society. And so I started to focus more on learning about the startup ecosystems, the startup community in Boulder. I became very close to um, and engaged with. I ran something called Startup Colorado, which my current partner, Brad Feld, was on the board of. So that was my introduction to Brad years ago. And I took a class in law school called Venture Capital. And that was my introduction to everything venture. And the the textbook for the class uh, was written by Brad and our former partner, Jason. And Jason was my professor in that class. So uh, it sort of all comes full circle. That said, I never, it didn't dawn on me at the time that venture was a career path. I had not spent time in the Bay Area. I didn't really get that. Uh, And so I just figured I would be a lawyer that worked with startups. And I thought that would be super cool. And I would get to be close to entrepreneurs. Um, And I think I quickly realized that I I wanted to be closer to it than being a service provider to it. Uh, Although in some ways, maybe VCs were service providers ourselves. At the same time, my husband and his family had a startup called Fair Harbor, uh, which was later acquired by Booking.com. 
And so I was sort of living this startup journey with them, literally like in my living room um, and helping a lot and learning and just seeing like, I mean, how hard it was and how hard they were all working, but also how much fun they were having and how interesting and exciting and sort of optimistic it is to be building something and um, building, you know, software that helps people have a better day, essentially, um, on the B2B side for this company. And so I decided that I would like to get closer to it and go into a different role, leave the law forever, I guess, and started looking at a bunch of things, uh, started talking to the Foundry guys, not really about a role at Foundry. They had sort of historically been pretty public about not ever hiring a junior person. And so explore different types of roles in operating and accelerators, things like that. And it turned out that my timing was very good because Foundry was starting a new strategy and bringing in a new partner, Lyndall Ekman, who was at the University of Texas Endowment, UTIMCO at the time, to institutionalize something that my partners had been doing with personal capital, which was kind of backing the next generation of emerging managers, uh, seed funds mostly had done well with it, if you looked at it at a, as a portfolio. Um, and Lindell had a history of kind of backing the next generation of great funds as well. So Foundry and True Ventures and USV and Spark and a bunch of other great ones. So a lot of things in life, our timing, our saying yes to things and showing up. So the reason that this conversation started was that I showed up to volunteer at an event uh, in the Boulder community and, and one of them was there. And so I met Lindell and he brought me in to help build what we call our partner fund portfolio, which today is 45 uh, seed firms, mostly seed, um, but early stage managers around the U.S. and, and Canada from zero, right? So from day one. And so I uh, spent the first couple of years of my career in venture more on the LP side, looking at lots of different seed funds, but then over time started to get to know the companies, learning through our portfolio of managers, uh, as well as my partners at Foundry and starting to direct invest over the past couple of years as well. So we do a lot of both. Everybody at the firm works across everything. Um, and the vast majority, call it 80 to 90 percent of the deals that we're doing where we're entering typically at a Series A, sometimes a little bit later, are coming from that network, that portfolio of our partner funds. And so we're, we're having a great time. It's a fun strategy. It's been, uh, I think we've been well positioned in a, a bit of a crazy up and down market. And, you know, I'm, I feel very privileged to have landed in this role in a thing that I literally didn't know anything about until not that long ago. So, Well, thank you. And we feel incredibly lucky as an industry to have you part of it. It was just great to hear all your journey. I learned a lot. Um, <laughs> I'm curious, you know, you kind of touched on this, but as your programs evolve, kind of how much time are you spending now on kind of the directs versus um, kind of the, L the LP commitments and relationships? Yeah. So I'm spending a lot more of my time on directs. If you think about our capital is sort of split 75% to directs and 25% to funds. And that's kind of how the time uh, plays out as well. We also cheat a little bit, you know, like, so spending time as an LP, a lot of your job is look at the underlying portfolio, see how the managers are doing, which companies do they like the best, which companies are going to drive returns. And while doing that, also picking out investments for us to do directly. So it's a little bit of double duty. But the, the vast majority of my time is on directs because our Funds portfolio is largely built at 45 firms. It's a lot. We've got plenty of deal flow from it. So 2,000 companies on a look-through basis today, and that continues to grow. And so as we add, it, it'll be, call it zero to two a year. Definitely on the emerging side, it's highly unlikely that we add to the established manager side of the portfolio. You know, and some, some of the managers, they get big over time, they graduate out. 
Um, and so that leaves room for some new ones. We, we basically think about our portfolio of partner funds in this strategy as an extension of the firm, almost like a distributed team, where if you believe that seed exposure is a really interesting place to play in this market, which we do, you can see historically a lot of the alpha and venture is generated by those really early smaller funds. Then if you want to have a seed practice, there's a couple ways of doing it. One is you raise your own seed fund or you add it into what you're doing and you hire a big team and you do seed. Some challenges there are, you know, you're, you're sort of getting the same culture and perspective of that firm. So you're not necessarily getting as much diversity at that stage of, you know, the people that are making the investment decisions and sourcing the deals. And then, that, you know, the other challenge is signal risk, right? So if you're already on the cap table um, as one of the seed investors and you're well-known, then when that company goes to raise a Series A, the question becomes, why is this firm that's already in the deal that leads Series A is not doing it, right? So our version of doing it is we have these 45 firms, 100 plus individual GPs at the firms. And it's it's like the 100 best team members you could you can't buy, right? Because they want to have their own firms um, and they're doing things their own way. They have very unique perspectives. There's just so much diversity in that group on so many levels, stage and geography and sector focus and portfolio construction and also all the demographic diversity. And so we're really excited about the network that we've built. Um, I think at the top of our funnel is always good humans. So I just I love the people um, and we kind of curate, you know, who's in the community. They all help each other. They're doing deals together. And on the emerging side, it's a way for us to, you know, stay close, like constantly refresh our network and stay close to the next generation and understand things that we wouldn't necessarily see ourselves in a way that also is empowering others to have their own firms. Thank you. That's incredibly helpful. And, you know, kind of to double click on your comment of having kind of the best team members and kind of this extended team. How do you think about performance with your LP lens? What's good right now? I won't, I won't peg it at a specific number. I think the important thing to think about, and, you know, like, largely folks are looking for three to five X returns when you're backing early stage managers, right? I think that there have been shifts in the market over the past two years or so where three to five X felt like table stakes. And it's important to remember how much of that was on paper in a very bull market where a lot of larger firms were coming down market, basically outpricing everybody else, uh, driving round sizes, pricing things at 200x revenue multiples. And that's all great when you have really high marks on paper, but LPs are doing this to create returns for their very important pools of capital, including pension funds and endowments and um, things that really matter that need cash flow. And so I think when we think about performance, it's really important to underwrite the companies and really understand where they are, how big they can scale, how far off their recent valuation mark is from the core business and sort of like how sustainable and how scalable is that business? Are the unit economics good? Things like that. And so I think that the challenge is, is LPs are often on very lean teams. The market has over the past 10 years, I mean, startup formation is 10, maybe 100x what it used to be, right? Because the price of, of starting a company has come way down. Also, entrepreneurship has really been spread everywhere globally. Um, and there's, it's certainly been largely democratized, like who can start a company and who even knows about starting a company. 
and people want to become entrepreneurs. It's interesting, like MBAs used to always want to be investment bankers or consultants, and now they all want to start companies, which is cool. And even and even undergrads. So I like there's so much volume and there's a lot of volume in early stage managers now, right? Everybody wants to raise a seed fund and there's enough companies to fund that that makes sense, right? Uh, you have the institutionalization of that angel round now becoming seed funds. And so it's just a ton of volume. And most large LPs, where the bulk of the capital is, do not have the capacity, the expertise, the context to go and really do the work to spend time on the underlying portfolios to understand the difference of the TVPI mark versus what this is actually going to play out to be. And so, I, you know, performance is at the end of the day, how much capital did this fund return? There's also the IRR and timing aspect of it. So I think, you know, the benchmarks have been ridiculous. At the end of 2021, uh, we all saw what that looked like. And now that we are about a quarter into 2022, things seem to have completely shifted and the pendulum swinging the other way. The public markets are, you know, they're down, which will event, which is already starting to trickle down into the early stage markets. And, you know, it's like daily we're, we're hearing this, you know, become even more and more acute. And so you could see that at some point in this cycle, a lot of companies that got way over their skis and were driving a large piece of the marks for a given early stage venture fund will be recapped. We'll have down rounds and it'll hurt for that manager to have to write down their portfolio, but it will likely correct everything to become a little bit more reasonable. And I think it will also push LPs and investors, frankly, to be thinking far more about the fundamentals of the businesses they're backing and not just about the hype and the momentum. No, that's incredibly helpful. And it's it's so interesting on the LP side because I think we're literally getting in our year-end numbers. So like, when do you think we'll see that impact? Because clearly if a company's, you know, marked a public comms, that's a little bit different than kind of the companies that are still in the private stages. So I'm curious your, your thoughts on that. Yes. I So I've already heard LPs complaining about distrib- distributions coming way down over where they were in 2021. So the cash flows are definitely being felt. And one one challenge with that is LPs that want to make commitments to new funds are not feeling like they have the cash to do it. So that's going to be interesting. At the same time, you've got because the valuations were so high and most of the like allocation targets at large institutions are based on the value of the portfolio, right? So you had the venture uh, allocation becoming a much bigger percentage than it was supposed to be because the marks were so high, right? And so they couldn't, they're not committing to new funds because they're overallocated. And so in some ways, if it comes down, they could, but they're not getting the distributions. And so they're hesitant to do that. And that's, you know, that becomes a challenge. Then you're going to get the denominator effect of the public markets going down ahead of the funds marks coming down. And so that's going to be even bigger problems. It's actually a pretty hard time to raise a venture fund right now. Let me actually answer your question, though. So I think it's going to take a few quarters, but for LPs to see it, right, because you're always sort of lagging a quarter behind. And, you know, especially like even, you know, our fund, the fund of funds piece of what we do, we're always reporting a quarter, fully a quarter behind because we're waiting to get that next quarter from our managers. So I think it's going to take a little while, but I, I, I'm hearing, I, like it's literally changing every day. So I'm hearing every day from managers that prices are starting to come down, even at seed. 
there's probably a bit of this, the barbell that always exists where however you define quality, the really, really high quality stuff is still going to have competitive rounds and high valuations and be really sought after. But it's that much harder for things on the other end of the barbell that maybe are less obvious, have less traction. The founders aren't as pedigreed, whatever it is, that'll have a real challenge. The other thing you're seeing is, which was so predictable, right? The larger funds, the hedge funds, like the the big, big, big funds that started doing early stage and doing growth in like, like true venture rounds are starting to pull way back. A big challenge for those companies will be they've raised a ton of money and they had these big pockets around the table. So they expected that they would just keep funding them. And that may not be the case and they may not grow into their valuations. So that'll be interesting. I'm still hearing that the some of the larger funds want to do A's and B's. Like they get that they have to go earlier. So the question will be, you know, they have, I mean, I won't name them, but like there's a $20 billion fund out there. There is a $13 billion fund out there. And the question is, will they, will they continue to just win on price or will they, will they build robust early stage practices where they're getting more involved with the companies and they will, they'll be sticking around at A and B? Remains to be seen. There's a ton of dry powder out there because funds were raising so fast because the market was so nuts. So that's one reason it could take a while. But I think that given where the public markets are at and people are seeing that exits are, you know, there's not going to be a million IPOs, the SPAC market totally tanked, right? So anything that, you know, those expectations of a company that was a little bit earlier getting to liquidity and not happening. So you can see people trying to figure out what to do. And the funniest piece of it to me is that it's just, I mean, it's been maybe three months from the complete opposite side of this equation, which was all of our managers being like, I don't know what to do. Prices are so high. Should I be participating in these follow-ons? Deals are so competitive. You got to move so fast. You can't do any diligence. All these big firms are coming into seed and taking my deals. And now they're freaking out in the opposite direction of like, everything's been overvalued. And now, you know, like the follow-on capital might not be there. And so what do I do about that? And so it's, it's even hard to know what to do with your marks, right, on valuation, because most firms' policies tie to the last round. And if, if there hasn't been a round in a certain amount of time, then maybe you change it based on performance. But how do you justify, like, a company, you know, a co- company was marked up at a 200x revenue. They're growing and they're hitting their targets, but that doesn't mean that they necessarily warrant that valuation. And so do you write down a company that's doing everything it's supposed to be doing and growing? Like, it's so it's, uh, it's going to be an interesting year. And, you know, I have the benefit of all of my partners um, who are a bit older than I, uh, having been through multiple cycles. And it's been, it was really helpful to stay disciplined during all the craziness because of that perspective. And a lot of our managers have not been through cycles. Um, and a lot of just seed funds out there, this is a lot of emerging managers have not been through cycles. And it'll be a very good uh, learning period for all of us. But we've definitely been getting our crew together. Uh, we're doing a call next week um, to talk about the market and what everybody's seeing. And so we're trying to be helpful and do a little bit of co- like coaching people through this. Um, and what are you telling them? I'm curious, because you do wear multiple hats, like are you pausing on the direct side? Are you changing your criteria? And then how are you taking kind of those learnings or that philosophy and kind of sharing it with your broader group? I, I think... One of the things we've been good at at Foundry always is kind of doing things our own way, taking our own view, mostly not getting caught up in hype. And also being outside of Silicon Valley is like actually very helpful just from a mindset perspective. You're kind of out of the noise. 
um, even though we've, we, you know, we've got great coverage in the Bay Area and lots of investments there. So I, I think that even during the cycle, we tried really hard to not get caught up in things that we knew deep down were ridiculous. I don't know if we'll have a perfect track record from that perspective, but I, I don't know that our strategy changes all that much because we we kind of just kept doing what we were doing and and trying to stay disciplined around it. Um, the the thing that we were really well positioned for was the speed of the market because the relationships that we have and just the focus that we have around uh, our partner funds portfolios allows us to identify companies that we're interested in far before they're raising. And so while a lot of funds were foregoing diligence for speed because it was the founders had their day and it was like, you know, give me a term sheet in a week or I'm not going to talk to you. We didn't have to do that. And we had, you know, sort of insiders on the cap table that were helping us. But we were also, we had already done work on certain deals that we knew we wanted to do ahead of when they were raising. And I think that can be really helpful. So we also think that, you know, vintage diversification is important. So our 2018 fund was a four-year fund. We deployed it over four years. And two of those years were 2020 and 2021, but two of those years were 2018 and 2019. And I think that in the long run, I think we will be very glad about that uh, because there are firms out there that deployed like mostly, you know, because Q1 of like, there were a couple months of 2020, it was probably more Q2 where everything kind of froze and then it went crazy, right? And so if you deployed most of your capital in 2020 and 2021, that's, you know, those are big valuations to grow into. And so anyway, so I think I think we're sort of in the we keep doing what we're doing. You pace yourself, you you maintain a high bar and you focus and and try to, you know, avoid the hype cycle and the momentum stuff. I have to say, I haven't heard the word um, four year deployment cycle in a long time. <laughs> <laughs> you know, maybe we can switch gears for a minute. I feel like there might be people listening or who are hoping to be in those like kind of zero to two slots in terms of partnering with new emerging managers. And I'm curious. You know, kind of what is to be true, given your very high bar for you to kind of get excited and really engage with kind of a, a new emerging manager? Yeah, so I'll kind of walk you through our criteria on on managers. So like I said, the top of the funnel is the good human test. This is a relationship business and these are long-term relationships. So we want folks that think long-term, that are active in their, whatever their communities are, that have a unique perspective that they bring to the table. Uh, that will be engaged with us. So, you know, we're we're definitely focused on who the humans are to start, right? And we want to spend a lot of time with people, right? So, you know, you want people that, that you like and that kind of share your ethos. And I would say at Foundry, you know, one thing we talk about is this give first ethos, which is that you do things, you show up for people, you say yes, and you know it will come back to you eventually. It's not necessarily why you do it, but it's kind of, it's like sort of a karma concept, right? And you just plant a lot of good seeds and, and stuff comes from it. And that's how we've run our business. And I think it's it's worked well for us. So we kind of look for folks that are sort of share that ethos. Beyond that, like to be more specific, right? We're US focused. We've done a few things in Canada. Typically for anything we're going to add, it's going to be in the emerging manager category. So probably a fund one or two. Um, it's probably a, a sub sub 50, maybe sub $100 million fund. It's seed uh, or pre-seed things we won't do, like we're not going to do life sciences and biotech. We don't invest in those things directly. We don't do a lot of, you know, direct-to-consumer brands. So it's probably like we don't do CPG. So there's things that don't overlap with us um, that we probably won't do from, you know, from the direct perspective. And two things have to be true, right? We have to believe as a standalone, this is going to be a high-performing fund and that we will have overlap such that we may find a direct deal to do with them. 
And there are lots of managers out there. There's lots of new funds started. There's tons of interesting people. Um, I love spending time with lots of them, although I'm trying to prioritize things right now. I have two small children. So uh, ruthless prioritization is the name of the game right now. But it just really has to stand out as like, why does this fund need to exist in the sea of seed funds that exist? Like, what is different about this? Why are these people like dynamic, magnetic individuals that are going to attract a bunch of talent? Um, Because at the end of the day, especially at seed, it's people betting on people. And so we're looking for folks that are really going to attract talent, but that also have like a really unique perspective that they can articulate to the market of what deals fit them and what they're looking for and how they help. And obviously we're looking at networks. We're a network-driven firm. That's how we think about what we do, right? Like things are coming from our network and we always try to extend and expand our network to make sure it's inclusive. So that's another thing we think about is what coverage do we have in a largely built portfolio today? And is this, so in addition to the, is this a good investment and might we have overlap? Like, does this bring something to our network that we don't already have? And that I think is the hardest, the hardest piece for folks that are pitching us to, to get and to like, to not be disappointed by is like, I like, I think you're gonna be a great firm. I'll introduce you to other LPs. This just doesn't feel like it's additive to us. Right. And there's going to be a lot of successful folks out there, but we have to be really disciplined around, you know, what's accretive to the portfolio and think holistically about the portfolio. So, you know, we're always, we're always looking to learn from our managers as well, but in ways that we're likely to extend ourselves, you know, from a direct perspective. So I think that's it. People that are coachable, it's helpful, especially on the emerging side, you know, real students of the industry, like they, they, under, they, they understand that portfolio construction is important, even if they don't totally get what to do with portfolio construction, right? And that like they they want to build a firm, right? So we're definitely not going to be looking for an angel that now has a fund, but is going to continue to operate like an angel. We're okay with solo GPs um, and we've backed several solo GPs, but they're all folks that, you know, through our conversations, we have an understanding that they really want to build a firm. I have so many follow-up questions. Um, so one is, do you have any priorities for building your network? Like, are there areas that you're specifically focused on or is it more kind of reactive where you meet someone and try and understand how they and your um, current community? It's a lot more about the people. I hate to say reactive because I feel like we do have a couple things in mind of like, okay, we could add something in this space. But a lot more, it's like you're going to fall in love with the people and then you're going to dig in on whether they're bringing something different to the table. No, that's incredibly helpful. And it's definitely all about the people. I did want to touch on kind of your comment earlier about, you know, underwriting kind of three, you know, generally people underwrite three to five X for kind of early stage. And I know, you know, I can share that we underwrite um, to five X for our seed funds and three X for our series A funds. Um, but I loved the comment about is three X table stakes. And I'm curious, like kind of how you think about underwriting, you know, do you, you look for managers that are aspiring to 5X or 10X or 25X, knowing that sometimes they won't hit it? Or are you okay with people saying, I really just want to kind of rinse and repeat 3X? Like, how do you think about kind of those parameters? I think it's like the concept of we're underwriting to 5X versus 10X versus 25X is is almost sort of silly, right? Because everyone's underwriting to as big a multiple as they possibly can. And the name of the game at Seed is we want outsized returns, by taking risk really early. So we definitely want folks taking real risk. I think that's another thing I didn't mention before is like, we're looking like this is this is a big piece of our risk portfolio, right? So we want folks that are taking risk, taking big swings, doing completely different things that no one else gets. 
but it, it's it's hard to say that like where and I actually when I see their target like when I see target outcomes in a deck you just kind of roll your eyes right because like nobody really knows and a lot of it's luck but I do think that folks that are really thinking about how portfolio construction ties to outcomes and understand the importance of that and even if they have a model that like like I'll give you an example hustle fund I'll give it to Eric I mean. I've never met someone that takes rejection better than Eric Bond and is like just so resilient, just such a good dude. Like we're, and and I would consider a friend. We are now LPs after turning him down multiple times. And it was, a lot of it was getting our heads around the portfolio construction and how that could possibly have big outcomes because there's a, they do a lot of deals. But the way we sort of got comfortable with it over time, and, I, and I'll give it to Eric, he came back to us after fund one when they were raising fund two, and he was like, you were right about X, Y, and Z things, right? And we've learned that and we've adjusted, which was more kind of on the bandwidth side than anything else. But the thing that got us comfortable was that when you looked at the portfolio, yes, it's it's a lot of positions, but there were really small checks in those early positions. And then they had scaled a program for how they get enough data on what the com- the companies and the founders to then make sort of double down decisions in a much smaller subset of the companies. And so then it was like, okay, well, we can think about all those little checks you're writing as maybe like adding up to one core position, which you're not going to lose, right? There's enough diversification in there that like, it may not be a big outcome, but there'll be some, there'll be companies in there that have returns, right? And so then it's a- about their ability to choose the right ones to get, you know, to get the information that they need and to spend enough time with the the founders to get the signals on where they want to, you know, put more capital in. And so that's one where it was interestingly, like, definitely not a strategy that we were focused on, but we fell in love with the people and the coachability around that and the humility around it. But sticking to like, no, this is our strategy. Like, we think this is really interesting and this is different. And that was, you know, that's an example of something where we didn't see it at first, but then we got there and we're you know, we're thrilled that we have that exposure. But if they had come to us being like, hey, look, see how this trails to a 10x, you're just sort of rolling your eyes. Like, you don't know that. Um, and most of the outlier funds, if you look historically, are really small and took a lot of positions really early. And so I think it's like a Mike Maples thing, like your fund size is your strategy. You know, that's another thing that I think will speak to outcomes. So if you're going to go pitch a $300 million fund that's going to have a 25x outcome, like that's just probably bullshit, right? So um, I, I think it's more about us understanding what they're focused on, what deals are looking for, what their network brings them, what their portfolio construction will look like. And, you know, and, and again, liking the people, there's a lot of emerging managers that are, co- are going to come with fund one and two and have very little track record, right? So it's really hard to know. And the other thing about track records is, right, like their history. So just because someone had a big fund once doesn't mean they can do it again. And so, you know, you dig it on the models with them and and get an understanding of what outcomes could look like. But I think level setting around a three to five X is probably the right expectation to set as we build our portfolio. And then, you know, you hope for the bigger outcome. And then, you know, for our strategy, we hope that we also invested directly in one of the companies that's driving those big outcomes for the underlying portfolios. I agree with so many of your points. And, you know, your point earlier about TVPI, I've been looking, you know, now now things are changing. The last couple of quarters are kind of like, okay, what's a financing event versus what's company development? No idea. But for emerging managers, your point, like there's very little, there's typically very little history. And, you know, Foundry's kind of uniquely positioned where you really have that direct lens, but, you know, endowments, 
um, traditional fund of funds, foundations, lean teams don't have that. How do you get comfortable then with the, the body of investment work? Like then how do you get excited? It's hard, right? You know, so I think for the emerging managers, a lot of it is understanding. And I, I always tell emerging managers, like you want to track a bunch of storytelling data around the, the early deals that you do because LPs are trying to translate into what is this going to look like, right? So understanding like, how did you find this deal? Why did you win it? Why did this founder want to work with you? How have you helped them? Do they send you more deals? Do co-investors that are of a high caliber want to look at your deals and then follow on into them? And then like, what kind of progress has the company made? There aren't a ton of LPs that have the time and network and context to do that. And so that becomes a big challenge with large LPs doing seed is that you kind of have to focus on it to be able to do it. So, you know, that that's a challenge, uh, which is why some of them, you know, work with fund of funds and other types of platforms to kind of get this exposure at scale. The other thing to think about with the underlying companies is like, how does this company speak to the narrative or the thesis of what this manager said they are doing? Right. And so it's like, do they like high level, do like, do these make sense? And high level, like, are these interesting? Like, it's kind of, you can kind of tell, like, is, you know, is this interesting or not? Or why did this person, this manager think it was interesting? So like understanding how they think about deals is important too. The other thing about emerging managers, right? So I said they, they rarely have long track records. Some of them spin out of other firms, right? So you can vet that is back to that point of it's talent backing talent. And so you can look for similar to, you know, how you're going to underwrite an early stage company, like what are the leading indicators of success? And are there certain things that might tie to something else, right? So if you're looking at a company and, you know, they just switched their model, so you don't know how retention is going to work, you can think about maybe engagement will track to retention, right? And maybe that's one way that we can take that leap of faith. If you think about it with a manager, well, you know, where have they chosen to work as an operator, for example, if they're an operator? And who have they hired? And what kind of talent do they bring? And do people love working with them? Have they made some angel investments? You know, there's all there's ways where you can kind of connect the two. I mean, we had one fund manager who had a history on the nonprofit side, but it was like, you're, you know, you're fundraising, you're building a I mean, him in particular was like a ton of fundraising and an incredible network based on, you know, what he had built around that program. Um, and seeing how how that kind of and had managed teams and it built the, right. So there's ways that you can do it. You have to be creative and you've got to be willing to take risk. And there's no point in participating in really early stage venture if you don't want to take risk because that's the whole point of that part of the asset class. And that's why the alpha is generated there. So nope, that's great. And then I'm curious. So let's say you have a meeting one and you love this person. Could you get comfortable without references from, like, do you need, what kind of references do you need? Oh, no, we do lots of references. Yeah, I assume, but like, do you need to hear from like other people who have invested, other LPs, or like, what would get you excited to say, like, I have to have a second meeting with them or I'm really interested? Yeah, so, you know, in, in building a network-driven strategy, you always have to be cognizant of not being exclusive, right? So that's one of the biggest problems with the venture capital industry is largely it's it's network-driven, right? And so, you know, it, it perpetuates this. I'm going to back people that look like me because that's what humans are comfortable with. So I will say we like we do love warm intros, but it's important that if you're going to function that way, then you need to make sure that your network is 
you know, doesn't just look like you and is and is representative and has the right coverage. So I think we've done a pretty good job of building that out. Um, and that's just been like spending a lot of time sort of with like the next generation of who's going to be a VC. So so people that are operators, people that are junior at certain firms and what like, you know, so that's that's kind of the work that you have to do to go and find those people. So a lot of it is like, you know, ref, referred in. The back channel references are always the best ones, right? Because that's where you get the honest opinions. And you have to have sort of established networks, relationships, trust with the right people to be able to do that in a way where you can do it continuously. So you have to be very good steward of the information that you're getting from people, obviously. So, you know, the back channeling can be with with founders. Often it's with co-investors or investors that sort of exist in the same ecosystem or community because they kind of know how other people act. So we definitely have trusted people that we call. I like talking to other LPs about managers, but I wouldn't say it's like the strongest reference point. There's a subset of us that do this work. So I would say my friends at Sapphire would be some uh, in the business that I actually do highly value the opinion and trust and would talk to. And so I know a lot of us are comparing notes a lot of the time. It's actually very important for GPs to understand that there is a pretty small subset of LPs that do venture, certainly emerging managers, and we all talk to each other. And so it's very easy to quickly find out if people are saying different things to different people. So in that initial referencing, it's all about like that good human part of our funnel, right? Um, As soon as we hear, you know, we kind of have a rule of thumb, like one data point, okay, but two or three, probably a flag. So we definitely do that type of thing. But the founders have the best references. The absolute best reference, not always easy to find, not always on sheet, right, is the founder whose company failed or the founder whose company you did not invest in. One of the best references I got was, and I'll, I'll she won't mind, um, Addie Lerner at Avid Ventures, uh, who's in our partner fund portfolio. She actually included in her reference sheet a company that she didn't invest in. And they raved about how helpful she was. And of course, they wished that she invested. But I thought that was pretty special um, to be comfortable putting someone on there that you actually said no to, uh, because that means that you're saying no well and that you understand playing the long game, which is, okay, well, maybe that founder is going to start another company someday that you'd be interested in. Or maybe that company could be a partner for one of your portfolio companies. Or maybe they have a reference for you, you know, from another founder and on and on and on. So I think that when we're doing our references, we're looking for like, how do you act, right? And what's your reputation? Because it's a very reputational game. Do you play the long game? Do you do the right thing? And then are founders really excited about working with you? Are they, you know, like, hey, you're, this person was a really small check, but they're, they're outsized for as, as far as value add. Like, that's the kind of thing you want to hear. Yeah, they didn't lead, like, especially for emerging managers that have small funds that haven't been leading rounds. You want LPs to hear, especially like if you're upsizing, right? Because then it's like, okay, well, you're going to go from writing 150K checks to 500K checks. That's very different from what you're demanding from a, you know, an allocation perspective or million dollar checks. And what you want to hear from the founders is, yes, this person didn't lead my round, but if they had the fun size to do it, I absolutely would have had them lead it or I absolutely would have given them the super prorata or whatever it is. Those are the stories you want to hear. And you want it to tie to what the manager is saying about themselves and what they're good at. And so you want that, like, what we're looking for is, you know, all the funds are different, right? And every, that's like a really fun piece of looking at this industry is everything's so different. All the managers are so different. Even if funds seem like they look the same, like the way that they approach the market's very different. And so, you know, I think the, what you're looking for is identifying a person who has built a strategy and a firm around themselves or around a group of people 
that plays to their strengths. So it's not necessarily, we're not always looking for like, okay, well, what is the specific thing? It's that the, it's the combination of those two. And it's like, you have the level of self-awareness to know what you're really good at, what your strengths are, what you bring to the table. And then you've gone the step further to build the fun strategy and brand and whatever it is around those things. And that, like, that's kind of the magic. That's incredibly helpful. I love how you describe that. You know, one thing I've been thinking about is, you know, to your point earlier about crazy TVPI. Um, you know, what if you have a manager who who doesn't have crazy TVPI, which is hard because, you know, some LPs only still use it because it is, as you mentioned, not a perfect indicator, but is one of the only data points there is. You know, in some ways, I feel like having kind of middle of the range TVPI is almost worse than having zero track record. <laughs> so what do you do if you have like a couple of funds that aren't standing out? Do you have any advice for managers in that situation? Yeah, I mean, the, so the most important thing, right, is what did you learn from it and how did you adjust the strategy forward? And how is what you're doing today different so that you think that you'll be set up for better success than, and than what that fund's showing? And then again, it's about telling the story, like the companies are, those are your shiny toys, right? So which ones are sleepers where, hey, I know this one isn't obvious and they had this struggle and they pivoted, but let me tell you about what's really exciting about where they are now. And if they've unlocked this thing and they just had this partnership, whatever it is. So I think that especially in the early days, right, like it's a good 10 years before you actually know what the performance is. And maybe it's six years before you're really seeing something and 15 or 20 before it's all said and done. Right. So it's going to take a while. And so I think it's about telling the stories of which are the which companies are the fund drivers. Um, what is the upside of this portfolio look like that wouldn't be obvious from, OK, look at my spreadsheet and see what my numbers are and benchmark them. The other thing, like I said, is the thing that you've learned. So, you know, since then, we shifted to doing X, Y and Z because we learned these things. And that's why we believe that our current strategy is different. As an LP, you like you have to underwrite the go forward. If you're underwriting the history, like it's 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 not as relevant. Like, yes, those are indicators that someone is good at picking and good at making decisions and good at helping the companies. But you've got to like, what is the team today? What is the strategy today? Is that interesting in today's market? You know, one thing that's been really interesting, if you think historically how much less competition there was in venture, like for certain vintages, even, you know, sort of 10, 15 years ago versus what there is today, right? And is and it, is this same group of people going to be able to be successful in the current market? Even though, sure, you know, five and 10 years ago, they were putting up strong numbers, but there was a lot less competition, right? So it's it's all relative and you've got you've to underwrite the go forward. And so as the manager, you really need to focus the LP around the go forward and why that piece is exciting. But then also you may have to, do a little bit of explaining and sort of do a bit of the analysis for them on why the earlier portfolios will turn out to be okay. I love that. I might steal shiny toys. <laughs> that might be my favorite <laughs> phrase of the day. Uh, I'll credit Lindell. I stole that one from Lindell. <laughs> you know, and we spoke a lot of, about a lot of good things, the networks, the, the shiny toys, all these things. Is there anything a GP can do or show you in a meeting that is like, no, outside of it, clearly if it's out of scope, it's out of scope, but anything you, you kind of, hear or see that kind of stops the process right there. I'm just curious. Mm. <laughs> um, so asking in the meeting if you're going to write a check, it, it's just a sign of a person that's very transactional. And so if you're like that with me, then that's probably how you are with founders. And we don't think that's a recipe for success, right? Or just in general with people. So I think things that indicate being transactional versus playing the long game. I think that overstating one's 
experience and track record is a huge red flag, especially when it's very easily vettable. So whatever the role you had was is fine because you are where you are today. And so I think being honest and transparent about your past is obviously the right thing to do, but it's just so easy to figure this stuff out. So that's definitely a red flag because it's like, why are you overcompensating, right? And it, this is like, I mean, venture's hard. I know being a founder is like a thousand times harder, but venture's hard and you're making really hard decisions with very little data and you have to figure out how to get conviction and then how to be confident around what you're doing um, because you can talk yourself in circles about being a bad investor, right? And everybody goes through that. Um, and the imposter syndrome in the industry is very real. And so I think it's a, when, when people are overcompensating, it's a flag to me that it's going to be, they're going to have a really hard time with the really long feedback loop that is <laughs> investing in early stage venture. venture. No, those are great ones. I guess I can chime in. I did have, to your point earlier about being yeah, coachable, yours? I did have one GP and I unfortunately knew by the end of the meeting that we were just not going to make the timeline for kind of the fundraise. And so I was very transparent about that, but also suggested that we'd like to grow the relationship. And um, this GP was um, very unhappy, <laughs> so candid about not being a candidate and ghosted me. So never set the follow-up presentation. Awesome. Never. <laughs> so I think, you know, that's another one that... Um, Sometimes people don't realize that, you know, that first decision is so important because we plan to partner for fund over fund. And so, you know, that's the nice thing about being an LP is if you miss one fund, um, you can partner for all the other ones. Yeah. And folks understand that. I mean, like Eric Bond, right? Like that, that play the long game. And I think also, and it's the same with founders, like being really defensive and just not open. I like people that stick to like, no, I'm convicted around this and here's why, but not being open is definitely a sign. Um, and then I should have mentioned probably the most important thing is if the partnership dynamics seem weird and, you know, we're doing this is hard these days because we're doing this on Zoom. So it's harder to pick it up. And often people aren't in the same room. But, you know, people disagree. Like I've seen this, like partners disagreeing with each other on the call about the strategy, talking over each other, kind of making faces while the other person's talking, just signs that they're not aligned or that something's off. Anything like that is definitely a no for us. And then in terms of my question a lot, I'm hoping you have a better answer than I do. But, you know, you mentioned long game and I love, I love you talking about hustle fund. They're just doing great things in the market. But like, how do you, how do you like people to stay in touch? So if you, if you turn down a fund, but you generally want to build a relationship, what's the best way to do that? It's a good question. So getting the updates is helpful. I will tell you that I will be very transparent. A lot of LPs that get your updates don't read them. Um, for whatever reason, I always read hustles. I don't, I don't know if it, like there was something about the the tone or whatever it was, and I, I thought the companies were interesting. Um, so sending the updates, and then I think checking in once in a while is totally fine as long as you're okay with me saying, "Hey, we're not looking at anything right now, but I'm happy to spend time with you." I think another, you know, it's also helpful. I've actually, I, I find it really interesting. I've had GPs that I've turned down send me other GPs. Which is, is sort of like, okay, you're that kind of person, right? Like you're kind, you're like, yeah, I, I know Jacqueline, I'll send it over even though she didn't do my fund, right? So I think that's interesting. Sending us deals, obviously, but that's, you know, that's kind of unique to folks that do direct investing like we do. Uh, th those are the best ways to stay in touch. And then asking for help, honestly. A lot of LPs like to be helpful. We certainly like to be helpful. We've got the LP hat and the GP hat. And so I think when folks at least do it in a way that's like respectful of your time, not like a, hey, I want to pick your brain, can we do this? But hey, I have a specific question. I think you could talk me through this. That That's like, and it's also a way for an LP to get to see how you think and to get to see you being a little bit vulnerable that I think is, I think is pretty refreshing and sort of strengthens that relationship and, and takes it beyond the transaction. 
I love that. And I love that you said specific questions because those are always kind of the easiest ones to help to be the most people with. Um, and then what, one quick follow-up question. You know, checking in once in a while, and some people think, you know, think of that as every two years and some people think of it as weekly. Like, what's your <laughs> favorite cadence? <laughs> uh, well, please, not weekly. <laughs> you know, it's probably once a quarter, once every six months, depending on sort of where you are in your fund cycle. You want to get way ahead of the next fund. I often say the best time to meet a manager is right after they closed a fund um, because then you have a long time and there's no pressure on it because they're not actively in market. The most annoying inbound I ever got was, hi, we're 80% of the way done on our fund and we realized we have no female LPs. Would you like to invest in our fund? There was just so much wrong with that. So that was definitely a no thank you. But I think also you really want to get way ahead of it with people because most LPs, you know, they're seeing a ton and they're doing so few and they need to spend a lot of time. And for a lot of the larger institutions, they've got, you know, their investment committee procedures and sometimes their investment committees only meet once a quarter and you've got to get on the docket and you're, you know, three quarters out. And so I think a lot of the, the right question to ask LPs when you're engaging with them is, you know, understanding like, does this seem like a fit for something you would ever do? And what does your process look like? And what would be what would what would be the next step and, and the follow up that you would like to have? And if they, you can kind of tell if they're not interested, and if someone's really not interested, um, it doesn't engage at all, and clearly doesn't get your strategy. Like it, it's probably not worth the time. Like you've got you have so little time as a GP that's like fundraising and investing and helping the companies and hiring people and firm building and all of the things. And oh, by the way, you want to be a human sometimes that you've got to be pretty focused and pretty, like, again, that ruthless prioritization with your time. I think that's great advice. And I guess the only thing I would add, too, is, you know, between updates, you want to make sure there was substantial progress. So, you know, that you can, so, like, if you check in too frequently, it's kind of the same update or story, I think. Kind of position yourself the best. It's nice to wait until there's a real company development or you hired your partner or whatever, and then it's kind of share real news. Um, and I do think we're kind of out of time, but do you have one one market prediction? Um, are there going to be fewer seed funds or what? I don't know what <laughs> anything you can share. I think you might see some consolidation in the market, possibly, you know, seed firms getting purchased by larger firms or merging together. And I think there's going to be a really interesting secondaries market coming to us. So folks really need liquidity. And so there's going to be huge opportunities uh, in secondaries. Thank you so much. This has just been um, a wonderful discussion and really appreciate your time and, con- and all of your insights. Thanks for having me. This podcast was created by Notation, a pre-seed venture firm based in Brooklyn, New York. We invest in product-focused teams on day zero. You can find us on Twitter at Notation Capital. We want to thank our hosts for this season, Sapphire Partners. Be sure to follow their OpenLP initiative on Twitter and sign up for a monthly newsletter of LP and GP perspectives on openlp.com.